Well, thank you, Mike. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing great. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Psalm 135, which is actually an encouraging psalm, a, a psalm of praise. The last psalm I did was on suffering. It was a lament psalm, and the one before that was an imprecatory psalm about dashing the baby's heads against the rock. So it's going to be really good to get a little, uh, just a happier psalm in here with uh, Psalm 135. Now, what Psalm 135 is going to do, is, in a sense, is read as almost like we're giving God an interview for why we should praise God. So every time I've had to interview for a job or something, it's always been really, really awkward. So one, you have to wear a tie, even if you're gonna be like a lifeguard or something, you always have to wear a tie. And so it's, you know, it's crushing my neck and my face is purple the entire time because I don't have clothes that fit that are nice. And so uh, you also have to turn in a resume, which is strange because it's like this socially acceptable way to boast, which I like. Put all the things that make you awesome on paper and turn it in and we won't think it's weird or pretentious. So you turn in the resume And then you sit down for the interview, and what is the one question you know they're always going to ask? What is it? I'm here. Some of you said it. Well, give me your your biggest weaknesses, right? And what do I do? I mention my strengths. Well, here are my weaknesses. I just, I work too hard. I care too much. Sometimes I distract people because, you know, they just like me, and so those are my weaknesses. And then they get me because they say, and now give me your strengths. And I'm like, okay, well, also, I work too hard and I care too much, and I just kind of do the same thing, right? And so every time I've gone into an interview, it's been kind of weird, except the one here at Parkway, actually, uh, Jeff Ashley and I showed up to the same interview at the same time, and so we just kind of, like stepbrothers, we were wearing tuxes and just kind of leaned out to the side, and we did that interview. But in an interview, what they're trying to figure out is they're trying to figure out two things. One, what is your character? Will you make a good fit for the team? The other thing they're trying to figure out is what have you done in the past? What, can, what proof can you give that this is going to be a good fit for you, that you're going to contribute to the company or the job or the church or whatever it might be? That's how Psalm 135 is going to read. The first half of Psalm 135 is going to tell us why we should praise God, and it's going to mention character attributes. The second half is going to explain why we should worship God, and it's going to mention because of the things that God has done. So as we work through this text, the, the main point of this text is praise the Lord. You see it, like Mike had mentioned at the beginning and the very end of the, uh, the whole chapter, it, it's just a, a psalm of praise to God. What I wanna do is I wanna give you eight reasons from the text of why we worship God. We know we should worship God, right? We're supposed to, but why? Why do we have to praise God? Why can't we just do what we want? Why can't we just praise ourselves? Why can't we praise something else? This text is going to tell us why we worship God, why we praise God. And I wanna see, I want you to see eight different reasons why as we work through this text. So let me pray, and then we will uh, begin in verse one. Almighty God, we thank you for today and just confess that we need your help, that we are uh, broken and sinful and hurting. And so I ask that you would uh, guide us. I pray that you would guide us through this text, that you would uh, help us see beautiful things in your word, that it might encourage our hearts. We love you. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Well, let's look at verse one. Praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, give praise, O servants of the Lord. The very first thing that you're going to hear in this psalm is this churchy word, okay? This kind of uh, Christianese, we have these weird terms when it comes to church. I don't know where these all come from, but we have this weird Christianese. We use certain words that you don't use anywhere else, and I'm going to share a few of them with you because one of them starts off with this psalm. Let me give you a few churchy words that we use. One, fellowship. Anytime we hang out with someone, we say it's fellowship. I don't know why we do that. We're gonna have a sweet time of fellowship or we just had lunch, right? That's something that we as Christians do. It's a weird kind of church word. Here's another one, quiet time. 
a quiet time. You don't have that. Your business doesn't come to you and say, did you have your quiet time today? Did you have a quiet time? Now, I'm for a quiet time if by that you mean a time each day where you read the Bible and pray. I just don't like the term quiet time because it sounds like you're in trouble. It sounds like you're in time out or something like that. Here's another ter- phrase you only hear in church or in Christian circles, hedge of protection. You ever heard someone say that? God, I'm gonna pray a hedge of protection. Why? Why not a wall of protection? Why not a barbed wire fence of protection? Why not a hedgehog of protection? It could be all kinds of things. Why not just pray for protection? That's one of those weird kind of Christianese words. Here's another one, anointed. You ever hear that in churches, anointed? In the Bible, to be anointed means you're the king of Israel. A priest pours oil on you and you become the king. So anytime I hear somebody say, man, that worship leader was anointed or that pastor was anointed, I think, they're the king of Israel? I've been waiting. I've been waiting all this time, but you found them, they're anointed. Sometimes you see this, you don't see this here at Parkway, but you will see this at certain uh, maybe overly charismatic churches, rebuking something in Jesus' name. You ever heard somebody do that? You say something and they say, I rebuke that in Jesus' name. That's called witchcraft. When you think, when you think that something's bad, gonna, something that is gonna happen that's bad, and the only way you can keep that bad thing from happening is by using a mantra, Jesus is doing just fine. He'll do what he wants to do, okay? He's doing just fine. You don't have to rebuke things in Jesus' name. Lay hands on. Anywhere else in the world, when you use that phrase, that means you attack somebody or you arrested somebody to lay hands on somebody, but we'll say, let's lay hands on Brother Jim or whoever it is, which means to pray for them, to pray for them, to, to, to share your COVID with them. Backslidden is a good one, okay? If you're walking in sin, even though you're supposed to be a Christian, they'll say you're backslidden. Here's one I like, fall festival. Here's what fall festival is, Halloween at church, Okay? Literally, you kids still dress up and they still get candy. It's just Halloween. It's not a fall festival. And then one of my least favorite ones, secular. Do you know what the rest of the world calls secular music? Music. You know what the rest of the world calls secular movies? Movies. It's based on this weird idea that the only things that are Christian are things that are explicitly Christian. And the Bible's going to say that that's the opposite, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, that unless something's explicitly sinful, it belongs to God. Jazz, in and of itself, belongs to God because it's beautiful and there's not something sinful about it. Well, here we get a particular church word. I share all that with you to say, this is what we get. You don't see it in English. The very first phrase there in your English Bible, those three words, praise the Lord, are not three words in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it's one word. It is the word hallelujah. Maybe you've heard that word and you've wondered, what does that mean? Why do people in church say hallelujah? Well, because that means praise the Lord. Hallel in Hebrew means to praise. Lu is a plural imperative, which means, as we'd say in Texas, y'all praise, okay? Or in the North, you guys praise, or whatever they say up in uh, less free states. <laughs> and then Yah means Yahweh. God's name is not God, just like your name is not human. God is what he is, just like you're a human. God's name, his covenantal name, is Yahweh, okay? And so, hallelujah means y'all praise Yahweh. You praise the Lord. And that is how this psalm is going to begin and it's going to end. It is a psalm of praise. So here's the first thing we see about praising God right out of the gate. Number one, we praise God because he commands us to. We praise God because he commands us to. Praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, give praise, O servants of the Lord. We praise God because he commands us to. Now that is so simple, but it's so profound. I had a hermeneutics professor one time interrupt the class and say, I wanna say something that is very, very simple that you already know, but also is very profound. He said, do you know why we worship God? For this reason, we're creatures. The, The reason we worship God is because he is creator and we're made out of the dirt. We're creatures. We don't exist apart from God. Why do I have to obey God? Why can't I do what I want to do? Why can't I build my kingdom? Why do I have to worship God? For this simple reason, you don't exist without God. 
He made you, he keeps you in being. God is the creator and we are creation. That is why we are commanded to praise God. It is fitting. It is what he deserves by the very fact that we didn't make ourselves. Second verse. Who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Okay, let's talk a little bit about God's house and these kind of things. First of all, God is not a spatial being. You need to understand that. If you're thinking of God as this old man with a beard in the clouds, you're thinking of Zeus. You're not thinking of the Christian God, okay? The Christian God does not have a body. The Christian God is infinite. He's not a spatial being. You can say that God is everywhere or you can say that he's nowhere. I don't care which term you use as long as you realize God is not made of matter and God is outside of space and time. And so when we talk about God's location, we're always having to understand that it doesn't literally apply to God. Now, having said that, in the Old Testament, there was a place that was called God's house. Now, by the way, that's not churches today, Okay? So anytime somebody gets up and they're like, isn't it good to be in God's house? I'm always thinking, this is a nice facility, okay? But the Almighty does not live here, okay? This is a nice facility, but our water fountain broke, and one time we had to cancel youth because bobcats were under the building. There's no bobcats under God's building, right? So the church buildings today, that's not the house of God. In the Old Testament, you have what is called the house of God, which is the tabernacle and then eventually the temple. Now, let me explain how that works. Because God is not a spatial being, he is equally everywhere. He's not more in one place than in another. That wouldn't make any sense. Rather, the temple or the tabernacle is where you go so that you can most feel God's presence. So though God is equally everywhere, his presence is especially felt in the temple in the Old Testament. That's the idea of the house of God. So what he's doing in this text is he's saying is that we are praising God when we come into his presence. This is why it's important in the New Testament when it says that Jesus tabernacles among us. The place you go to most experience the presence of God is no longer a building in Israel. It is a man. It is Christ in whom all the fullness of deity dwells, who himself is God. Verses three through five. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Second reason why we praise God according to this text. We praise God because of who he is. We praise God because of who he is. These are all character attributes of God. And he mentions specifically four of them in talking about who God is. First, we see in verse three that we praise him because he's good. God is not evil. God does not directly do evil. God is good. He's not like the, the Greek gods in uh, Greek mythology that are all like committing incest and doing a bunch of weird stuff and getting, you know, enraged and all this kind of stuff. That he's good. He's good. He's the perfection. He's the definition of good. He sovereignly uses evil. He ordains evil. He is the, as Aristotle would say, final cause of evil, but not the efficient cause of evil, and that he uses evil for a good purpose, though he himself does not directly do it. Evil does not flow from his nature. We also see in verse three that he brings joy. That's the idea where it says that his name is pleasant. We as humans all want to find joy, and we can't get away from it. Why do you want more money? Because you think it'll make you happier. Why do you want a bigger house? Because you think it'll make you happier. Why do you want to get married? Because you think it'll make you happier. Why do you want kids? Because you think they'll make you happier. Why do you want a better job? Everything we do is to try to maximize our joy. God has wired us that way. And the way that we actually find that fulfillment is only in the one whose name is pleasant, only in the one who is himself joy. We see in verse four that he is the electing God, that he has elected his people. That's why it says that he's chosen Jacob for himself and Israel as his possession. If you're ever at a place where you feel like you have nothing to praise God for as a Christian, let me just give you one thing you can praise him for, your salvation. You can praise him for your election. 
that God looks across the sea of damnable humanity knowing that nobody chooses God. There is none who seeks him, no, not one, and said, I'm gonna have mercy on this one, this one, and this one. We praise him because he's the electing God. And then we also see here as we're praising God for who he is in verse five, that he is the greatest being, that he is above all gods, that he is the greatest possible being. Now, verse five, we gotta spend some time in because it says something that seems strange. So let's read it again. Look at verse five. For I know that the Lord is great and that our God, I'm sorry, we know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. What does that mean? Zach, I thought we as Christians were monotheistic. Why is it talking about gods as if there are these other beings or something like that? If, if we're monotheist and the Bible only says about a thousand times that there's only one God, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, here's what we have to do. We've got to do a little philosophy of language. So put on your thinking cap as I get up on this soapbox and yell at you. You ready? Okay. Words don't just have one meaning. Everybody good with that? Words don't just have one meaning. That's why when you open a dictionary, it gives you several meanings. Additionally, dictionaries don't determine the meaning of words. Webster, whoever he is, is not God. What dictionaries do is they tell you how words are already being used within a society. So the dictionary always follows behind culture. That's why they add new words to the dictionary every few years, right? People start using a word and then the dictionary catches up. So a dictionary doesn't determine the meaning of words. Context determines the meaning of words. You with me so far? If that was confusing, forget all of that and I'll give you another example. What does the word run mean? Think about it for a second. Let me give you some different things the word run can mean. You can run like the verb where you're going faster than walking and trying not to throw up. You can participate in an event like a 5K fun run for the cure and now it's like a noun, it's an event, that's a run. You can run for office, your nose can run, a bus or boat may have a particular repeated journey that it takes called a run. You can run a corporation as a boss, your refrigerator can run, hence the prank call joke. Is your refrigerator running? Better go catch it. A girl can have a run in her hose. You can even smuggle narcotics and be called a drug runner. So notice, the word run does not have just one meaning. It completely changes its meaning based upon context. Everybody with me? Okay, so running like this has nothing to do with running for office or your nose running. They're all, same word, same spelling of the word, completely different meanings, okay? Now here's why I say all of that. The exact same thing is true in the Old Testament with the word God or gods. The Hebrew word Elohim can be used of a singular God, like the God of Israel, or it can be used in a bunch of different ways. And here's how you know what it means. Context, context. Let me give you five different ways that God or gods is used in the Old Testament, okay? I think we even have a little slide. There it is, excellent. So first of all, the term can just be used for actual God, the the one eternal Trinitarian God of the universe, okay? That's most often what the term means in the Old Testament, but it can be used other ways. It can be used of idols, when we say that someone's worshiping an idol or worshiping these false gods, they're not, we're not literally saying they're God like Yahweh. We're saying that sometimes this term is applied to them. Sometimes the term gods is used for the so-called gods of the nations. So what I mean by that is sometimes a prophet will say, you know, pronounce some judgment on the gods of some other nation. That doesn't mean the prophet thinks those gods exist. He's just using that term because other people think those gods exist. So when I say the gods of Greek mythology, that doesn't mean Zach literally believes that those gods exist. I'm using the term gods because other people have thought that they existed. Other people use the term that way. Sometimes it is even used of human rulers and judges. In one of the Psalms, it mentions that a human ruler is like a god in this sense. Now it's not saying that God has more than one son. 
It's not saying that we're literally gods. It's saying when a king in Israel or a judge is to rule, they're doing something that's kind of like what God does. God rules cosmically, and so when a king rules, they are acting in this powerful way. And then a lot of times, it's used in this last sense, and that's actually how it's used here in this text, that it's used of angels and demons. It's used of what we think of as heavenly beings. So don't let this throw you. The Bible is thoroughgoingly monotheistic. There are entire cults and false systems of religion based off of this mistake just because they don't know philosophy of language. Sometimes when the Bible is using that term, Elohim, it refers to God. Sometimes it's referring simply to what we think of as angels and demons. A better translation here would have just been angels and demons or heavenly beings, okay? So don't let that throw you. The same thing is true with the phrase son of God or sons of God. Let me give you five ways that can be used, you'll see, throughout the Bible, okay? Jesus, the actual second person of the Trinity, when we think of the son of God, that's the most important sense. But that term, because words don't just have one meaning, they can mean a bunch of different things. Sometimes it's used as human, for humans, just because God created us. Let me be clear, we are not gods in any sense. We are little people made out of the dirt, But sometimes the Bible will call God our father or will call us children just because God created us. Adam's called a son of God, right? It doesn't mean that we're literally like God. It just means we stand in this special relationship. It's kind of like, you know, with that crazy cat lady who's calling her cats and she's like, come to me, all my babies, right? They're not literally her babies. She's using that term to talk about this type of relationship. Sometimes sons of God are used as believers, We are not sons of God like Christ, who is the son of God by nature. We are sons of God by adoption. God takes things that are not like him and adopts them into his family. Sometimes it's used of the kings of Israel. Jeff mentioned that when he preached out of, uh, I think it was Psalm 2, where sometimes the king of Israel is seen as like a son of God because he rules and he reigns. And then also that phrase is used of angels and demons. That's actually what's going on with the whole Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story. Sorry to ruin that for you. That's just an angel when it says one like a son of God. It's just talking about an angel or demon. Again, heavenly being. So I say that whole theological lecture to say there is one and only one God and there is nothing like him. Sometimes the Bible will use that same Hebrew word to refer to heavenly beings general. What we think of today as angels and demons. Everybody with me? This text is simply saying that God is greater than any other thing people worship. God is greater than any other thing people worship. Now let's look at verse six. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Third reason why we praise God according to this text. We praise God because he is in charge of everything. We praise God because he is in charge of everything. Let me give you a thousand verses. Ephesians 1.11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's funny there in Greek because the phrase all things means all things. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. God doesn't ever not get his way. Daniel 4.35, I love this one. If you're somebody who thinks you're, you're, you're important, you're a powerful person, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Put that on your Christmas card. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none could stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. So there are some people that think God just is sovereign or ordains the big events of our lives but there's all this wiggle room in between. There's no wiggle room. Useless birds fall from the sky when God commands them to die. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. What does that mean? Casting lots was like a ye old way of drawing straws. 
So if somebody has to do a job nobody wants, you draw the straws and whoever draws the short straw has to do the bad job. What this text is saying is the most random of events are not actually random. That God has ordained every time you roll a dice what number it will land on, every time you flip a coin, whether it will be heads or tails or whether your coin is faulty and cheating, God has ordained when you get blackjack, he ordains when you get a flat tire, he ordains when you throw a basketball behind your head and it just goes in the goal. When we say that something looks like luck, we mean luck from our perspective. There's no luck from God's perspective. God is sovereign over everything. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So if you ever don't like who's in political office, instead of acting like a crazy person, here's what you can do, pray. Because God is the one that determines people's hearts, including governmental leaders like the king. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Even when you're planning out what you think is gonna happen, it's God who must establish the steps. Acts 17, 28, I like this one. For in him we live and move and have our being. This is why in the early church, they'll often call God being with a capital B. They're not saying God is everything. Their whole point is God necessarily exists and nothing exists apart from him. I didn't have to exist. God could have made a world without Zach. It would have been a better world, to be honest with you. It would have been a better world, okay? But it's not that way with God. God must exist. Before the creation of anything, back when there's just Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity, to be God and to exist are the same thing. That God necessarily exists, and we only exist because God keeps us existing. If God removes his hand, you disappear. Job 34, 14 through 15. If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. You control nothing. We praise God because he controls everything. Every molecule in the ocean that sloshes around, all the number of the grains of sand on all the beaches all over the world and under the sea, all the billions of galaxies, some of which we will never see that just turn and burn for the glory of God, God controls everything everything, and that's one of the reasons we worship him, you will find that most of the anxieties in your life come from you playing God. Comes from you trying to control things, though you don't get to control things. Let's do a little experiment just to prove that, shall we? Look outside through these windows and notice that it's sunny outside and it's the daytime. So I just want you through sheer will to do something very simple, something that would not be difficult for God. Go ahead and just turn it to nighttime. Ready? Go ahead. I'll give you a second. Just will, really believe it. You control nothing. Let's do something easier. Why don't you just try to levitate a little? Little David Blaine, just float up. Fly up right in your seat. Go ahead, I'll give you a second. Just through sheer will. You control nothing. Now, you might say, Zach, those are too extreme. Okay, let me give you a simpler one. Find your pulse. Go ahead. Find it in your wrist. Find it in your neck. Just feel your heartbeat for a second. Find it. Now, through sheer will, without moving, go ahead and just command your heart to stop beating. You don't even, you control nothing. Not even your heartbeat, your brain is making your heartbeat and you can't even make it not just by wanting it to. You don't even control you. By the way, I'm really glad no one had a heart attack. That would have ruined my, my illustration. That would have really ruined that. The point is we worship God because he is sovereign. He is in charge of everything, okay? He is in charge of everything. Verse seven, he it is, in talking about God's sovereignty, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth 
who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Jeremiah 10, 13. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. This is just a subset of showing the power and might of God. No matter how smart we as humans become, no matter how technologically advanced we become, we still can't control making it not 110 degrees in Texas. We still can't control the fact that there are hundreds of people that die every year from tornadoes and hurricanes and all these kind of things, thousands if we expand it worldwide, that despite all of our brilliance, God is sovereign. One of the things that most blow our mind when it comes to thinking about God is that he is sovereign over the weather. This is one of the reasons why it's amazing when Jesus calms the wind and the waves. This is something that only God is said to be able to do in the Old Testament because Jesus is the God of the Old Testament, that he is sovereign over these things. So I wanna read something to you. It's a long passage. Don't, you don't have to memorize it or anything. It's from Job, and it just talks about the glory of God over the weather. Job 38, 22 through 38. This is God's response to Job. When Job says, how dare you let suffering happen? You answer me, God. Instead of giving an answer, God shows up and says things like this. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail which I've preserved, reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man to satisfy the waste, the desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass? He's saying, I cause the rain to fall in the desert where no one sees it where just I see the cactus that sprouts up, I see the little lizard that it cares for. Where are you, O Job? Verse 28, has the rain a father or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazarot in their season or can you guide the bear with its children? Those are all constellations. He's saying when you think that I don't know what I'm doing, remember, I tell the stars where to go. You as a human trip over your own feet and forget people's names, but I tell the stars where to go. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that the flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens? when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together. Now, not only is this amazing about God's sovereignty, but it's also amazing because in an agrarian society like these Jews would have been, it's talking about God's sustaining of their life. That if God stops rain from falling all over the world for a long time, we all die. This is a reference to the fact that it is God who controls whether the sun shines or the rain falls on the just or the unjust. It is God who provides for what we need, which is number the fourth reason why we praise God. We praise God because he provides what we need. The food you eat has been given to you by God. The water you drink has been given to you by God. The money you have, the job you have, all that is God's provision. The fact that you uh, have some type of shelter over your head, all that's God's provision. Well, no, Zach, I I went to my job and I worked hard. Who ordained that you would be hired? Who fed your boss? Who did all this? It all goes back to God regardless, okay? So we worship God and we praise God because he provides what we need. Verses eight through 12. Now the the interview, the resume is gonna shift. We've just talked about some good things that God is. Now we're gonna see that we should praise God for some things that he has done. Let's look at this. Verses eight through 12. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, 
who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people, Israel. These texts are going to say the reason that you should praise God is because of his deliverance. And specifically, he's gonna mention four instances in the Old Testament where God delivers Israel. First, he mentions the one you're probably familiar with. You know the Moses story? You know the one in Egypt? God's people are in slavery in Egypt and they are doing backbreaking work with the Pharaoh that is crushing to them. And so what does God do? God sends Moses to deliver them. But it's not really Moses who's delivering them, right? Moses is kind of a terrible person. He murders a guy and buries him in the sand. He's not very eloquent. Later on, he disobeys God, doesn't get to enter the promised land. Do you know how old Moses is when God calls him? 80, 80. He has to ride a Lincoln town car to get to Egypt and gets there and tells Pharaoh to turn his music down or whatever. That's what's going on. It's God who's having to deliver them from Egypt. Exodus 12, 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Now look at this, as we, as we talked about our discussion of gods. And on all the gods of Egypt, meaning the demons that they worship, I will execute judgments, I am the Lord. Numbers 33, four, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them, on their gods also the Lord executed judgments. Again, there is only one true God. What he means by that are created demons who the nations are worshiping, in this case, Egypt. Now, the numbers two and three are stories that you might not be as familiar with. Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. Both of these, uh, these kings are people that oppose Israel when it's the newest generation of Israel. After they've wandered in the desert, the next generation that's gonna enter the promised land, these are pagan leaders that come out to oppress God's people, and God delivers them. If you wanna read more about them, it's in Numbers 21 where you can read about it. And then lastly, Canaan. Canaan is this land that is filled with evil. There is polytheism and idolatry, people burning their children as sacrifice to their gods. There is sexual immorality. It is a terrible place. And what God does is he sends in Israel to both punish the Canaanites and also to bless Israel with this promised land. Now, how do we apply this today? Here's how it works. What the psalmist is saying is, praise God because he has delivered us and he has given us a promised land. Listen, we praise God for the exact same reason. God has delivered us from our Pharaoh, Satan, who demanded works, who demanded legalism, who demanded that we would make more bricks using less straw, that made our lives miserable, and God has delivered us from him, and he has brought us into a new promised land, not a strip of land in Palestine, but rather a heavenly Jerusalem, where the new heavens and the new earth meet, that we are to inherit the entire world as believers. That's really the purpose of the promised land, is to show that Christians eventually get the world, because we belong to Christ. So number five, we praise God for what he has done in saving his people. We praise God for what he has done in saving his people. Verses 13 through 14. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Let's look at verse 13 first. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. Here's what this text is saying. God has, had, and will always have renown and glory. You do not add to God's glory. You do not take away from God's glory. Back in eternity, when there's just Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity, okay? God has all the glory he will ever have. God is sufficient in himself. We do not take away from God's glory, nor do we add to it. God is glorious, and he will always be glorious. Listen, the most hardened atheist will glorify God. He'll just do it through judgment instead of through grace. Everyone will give glory to God. There is no ultimate rebel. Everyone will give glory to God. You either give glory to God because you trust in him and he gives you mercy for all eternity 
Or you glorify God because he causes you to burn and hurt justly for your sins for all eternity, but everyone will praise God. There is no not, there is no not being used for the glory of God. That's why you exist. That's why we were created. You can't actually fully rebel against God because he'll still turn it into his glory. It's kind of like how, just to give some, some maybe examples, when somebody burns like an American flag or whatever, the reason that that's ironic is because the only reason they're able to do that is because they live in a country protected by that flag. They live in a country that is free. That's the great irony. I hate everything about America except these freedoms that allow me to do this, right? Or when people have an anti-police rally. Who protects those people from killing each other? Police. It's the same way with God. You can't actually get away from God. You even need God to try to rebel against God. Write a book on atheism. You're using the mind God gave you. Breathe and eat and sleep and drink water. You're using all these things that God has given you. There's no ultimate rebels. God will always have his renown. God's always been glorious. He will always be glorious. It's just a lot better for you and I that we glorify him through the grace side and not through the judgment side and not through the judgment side. Verse 14. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have, y'all underline this in your Bible if you don't have it, and have compassion on his servants that one day the vindication you're wanting will happen. It will happen at the resurrection. But in the meantime, do you know that God is compassionate? So I think if I were to ask you, do you think God loves you? You'll say yes. But if I say, does God like you? Then I start to see people squirm in their seat. Do you actually believe that God has compassion for you? That he's gracious, that he's merciful? He doesn't regret saving you. He's not like, oh man, this guy ended up being a problem child and I didn't know that. God doesn't regret, he enjoys you. He loves you. He has compassion for you. And you say, but Zach, I fail all the time. That's why Psalm 103 says that he remembers that we're just dust. He has compassion on us because he remembers we're just dumb humans and he gives us grace. And if you say, but Zach, I, I have a lot of sin. How can he have compassion on me? I think that there is a sense in which he has more compassion on humanity knowing our sinful state. So when my daughter was first born, they uh, do several different medical tests and they, one test came back as positive for a very deadly and dangerous disease, okay? So we got a call that said, your daughter may have tested positive for this particular disease. And so we, at that moment, we were, we were devastated. We thought the rest of our life is gonna be taking our little girl to the hospital and then we'll put her in the grave and she won't put us in the grave. That's what we were thinking. We found out later that it was a false positive. Thanks, medicine! We found out that it was a false positive. And so we rejoiced because everything was okay and there was nothing wrong with her. But for that week, while we were waiting on the test results, do you think I had more or less compassion for my daughter? I had more compassion for her. Not only is she little and small, but if she's broken, there's a sense in which I realize I'm gonna have to give her more grace. I'm gonna have to give her more kindness. I'm gonna have to give her more mercy. That God is compassionate to you despite your failings, despite your struggles. So number six, we praise God because he has shown us mercy. We praise God according to verses 13 and 14 because he has shown us mercy. Verses 15 through 18, the text is gonna take a little shift. We've been talking about the true God. Now we're gonna talk about false gods. Verses 15 through 18, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So now this text is going to talk a little bit about idolatry. I want you to see a few things about idolatry from this text before I talk about why we praise God through this, okay? The first thing that you need to know is what an idol is because this is a text denouncing idolatry. Now, I have a feeling that most of us think that an idol is just bowing down to a statue, 
The sin that is most committed in the Old Testament, the sin that Israel gets punished for the most is the sin of idolatry. And when we think of idolatry, we typically think of bowing down to like a, you know, silver monkey statue or something like that. Now, to be clear, that is idolatry, but here's what you need to understand or else you won't realize how idolatrous your heart and my heart really is, okay? That's not the only way the Bible defines idolatry. This thing that God hates, idolatry, is not just bowing before a statue. Here's what idolatry is. Where you put your trust in anything other than Christ. It's where you put your hope in anything other than Christ. It's where you put your ultimate joy in anything other than Christ. It's where you love something as much or more than God. That's idolatry. I have never bowed before a statue in my life, and I have committed idolatry every single day. An idol is that thing that you run to to find comfort when your world is crumbling. That's an idol. Let me give you a few passages just in case you don't believe me. Job again, in talking about avoiding idolatry, Job 31, 24 through 28 says this. Listen to how he defines it. If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, meaning if I have put trust in the fact that because I have money, things are gonna go okay, idolatry. The same kind of idolatry in God's mind as bowing before a statue. If I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed. I've wanted to worship creation instead of creator. If I've looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. Notice that idolatry is not just bowing before a statue. It's where you're putting your trust in something. It's where you're rejoicing in something that's not God. Not where you're praising God for the sun, but you're pra- meaning S-U-N, but rather where you're praising the sun. S-U-N. Or Colossians 3.5, look at this one. This one really hurts if you live in a place like America where wealth is everywhere. Even poor people are wealthy in America compared to the rest of the world. Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, look at this next one, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Wait a second, the Bible just said something really powerful about idolatry. It just said, when you want something that doesn't belong to you, you've committed idolatry. That's my whole life. I want a bigger house and a better car and more money and more fame and more. I always want more. I want a boat. I don't have a boat. If you have a boat, let's be friends, right? (laughs) Notice that the Bible's gonna say covetousness is idolatry because you're not finding your joy in being content with Christ and what you have. Rather, you're finding your joy in more, more. So the first thing you need to realize is this text, we can't just pass over and say, I don't bow down to idols. You bow down to idols. You just do it in your heart. You just do it in your heart like I do. Second thing you need to see in this text, the idols cannot deliver you. That's why it says that they, for example, have ears but can't hear or mouths that can't speak. Mankind is made to worship God. So if we don't worship God, we will worship something, okay? There's no not worshiping. You're made to be a worshiper by creation, okay? So if you don't worship God, you will worship something else. Meaning worship's not bowing before, it's the thing your heart loves the most. An atheist will worship self fame, money, whatever it is. Everyone is a worshiper. So when you don't worship the true God, what you do is you create idols and you put your trust in them and guess what idols do? They don't deliver because they're fake gods. You put your hope in your money and then COVID happens and the stock market's going crazy and it destroys your God. You put your hope in your marriage and then your spouse cheats on you. You put your hope in your kids and they rebel. You put your hope in your health, you get sick. That's what false gods do. They're not made to be that ground that you can stand on. They're made to not work. That's what he's saying about this. Whatever the thing is you've ultimately put your joy or hope in, if it's not Christ, it will not deliver. It will not give you the joy, the satisfaction, the peace, whatever it is you're hoping that it will deliver. 
The third thing, this one's fascinating. This comes from verse 18. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. The more you commit idolatry, the more like an idol you become, okay? The more like an idol you become. To say it another way, God has created humanity to worship God. So the time that you're the most human is when you're worshiping God. When you're walking in fellowship with God, that's when you're the most human. That's when you're the most, most acting the way God has designed you to be. When you are walking and following God, you're following Christ, guess what? You become more human. You become kinder. You become more patient. You become smarter because you know God's word. You, the arts flourish. Education flourishes. Music flourishes. As humans follow God, things go great. It makes you more human. When you commit idolatry, you're not living up to the humanity that God has called you to do. As you worship idols, you become less kind, less patient, less serving of others, less like the human God has designed you to be. Now, let me read a very powerful passage that illustrates this message. Jeff taught about it when we did our Roman series. If you wanna go back and listen to that, it's out of Romans 1. Romans 1, 22 through 27. Notice what's said here about idolatry and relating sexual immorality. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. These are people that rejected God. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, notice that God doesn't look like a man according to this text, and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Look at verse 26. For this reason, because of their idolatry, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Listen to what's being said here. When you're worshiping God, you are doing what God has designed humanity to do because you're a creature and so you worship the creator. There's an infinite gap between you and God. He's creator, you're creature. When you worship him, notice what you're doing. You're worshiping what's other. And so in sexuality, when a man marries a woman or a woman marries a man, they want what's other. That's how God has designed you to be. You're being this full human potential when you're pursuing what is other. When you turn and you commit idolatry, you're seeking for what's same. I won't worship creator, which is different than me. I will worship creature. I will worship what's the same as me. So then you seek out what is the same. That's why as you worship God, the the analogy is heterosexuality and worshiping idols, the analogy is homosexuality. With the worship of God, it's what's other, so you want what's other. With the worship of self and creature, it's what's same, so you want what's same. Now, this text is not saying homosexuality is the worst sin or it's an unforgivable sin or something like that. There is mercy for you if you struggle with the sin of homosexuality, you but have to repent and trust in Christ, okay? But the point that he's making is that when you worship something that's not God, you are not being as fully human as God has intended you to be. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna give us some questions to help us assess our idols. I was gonna put them up there on the screen, but there's like 14 of them, so I'm not gonna do that. I'm just gonna read them to you. Don't write them down. If you want them, email me and I'll send them to you. I just want you to hear this. These questions will help you and I find the idols in our hearts so that we might not trust in them like in this passage. Let me read you some questions. What do I worry about the most? Ask yourself that. What do I worry about the most? That's probably that thing is probably an idol. It's probably the thing that you are letting consume all your thoughts. What, if I failed at it or lost it, would cause me not to want to live? What's something that if you failed it or lost it would cause you not to want to live? That thing is an idol. What do I use to comfort myself when things are difficult? 
What do I use to cope with? What are my release valves? At the end of a difficult day when things are really, really bad, what is the thing that you run to to find comfort? Because if it's not Christ, it's an idol. What do I do to feel better? What do I do to feel better? You see, when you thought idols were just worshiping statues, you thought you were crushing it. But now that when we ask these questions, we see, as Calvin would say, that our heart is a continual factory of idols. What preoccupies me? What do I daydream about? What makes me feel the most self-worth? What am I the proudest of? What do I want to be known for? That thing, if not your love for Christ, is an idol. What do I lead with in conversations? What do I want to make sure that people know about me fairly early on? You can often find people's idols by just spending five minutes talking to them. They'll tell you all the things that they think that are most important about themselves. What prayer unanswered would make me seriously think about turning away from God? What prayer unanswered would make me seriously turn, think about turning away from God? What do I really want and expect out of life? What would really make me happy? What is my hope for the future? What do I have a tendency to lie about? In what area do I have a tendency to tell the story in a way that makes me look good? And then lastly, what is the one thing in my life that if it were different, life would be perfect? If blank in my life were different, then my life would be good. What goes in that blank for you? Because if it's not Christ, that thing is an idol. That thing is an idol. Seventh reason we praise God according to this. We praise God because it fights against idolatry. We praise God because it fights against idolatry. That is the solution to fighting your idolatry. It's not to try to not have idols. It's to put the true God in the place of those idols. We're almost done. Verses 19 through 21. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Here's what you need to see. The solution to your idolatry, just like the solution to my idolatry, is not to try to not love stuff, okay? It's very hard to kill a passion. So if your idol is your spouse, do not divorce them, okay? If your idol is your kids, do not put them up for adoption. A lot of times idols are not bad things, they're good things that we make God. They're good things that we make ultimate. The way that you fight against your idolatry is not by trying to get rid of that desire. It's by replacing it with a greater desire. It's like you have all these little fires burning for evil things in your heart and you can't get rid of those flames, but here's what you can do. You can have an all-encompassing fire that burns all of those up because your passions are directed towards a greater passion. You, it's hard to kill a passion. You have to replace it with a greater passion. So I'm not saying if you love your spouse, love them less. I'm not saying if you love golf, don't play golf. What I'm saying is, unless Christ is on the throne of your heart, unless Christ is the highest thing, the way that you fight idolatry is not by trying to get rid of the things you love. It is by worshiping God appropriately. It is by realizing that he is the thing you're looking for. The joy you're looking for in money, the joy you're looking for in sex, the joy you're looking for whatever is actually found in God. And when you realize that, everything falls into place. And these things that were previously idols now just become gifts. Some things cannot be gifts. If it's an idol of something that's sinful, it just has to be destroyed. But those other things, you learn to love them less, not by trying to love them less, but by loving God more. How do I love God more? Zach, how, how do I love God? I want to love God more. What do I do? You realize that he loved you first. You don't think about you loving God. You can't conjure that up. You realize that God loves you. You realize that why we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We realize that we love him because he first loved us. It all starts with him. If you want to love God more, you can't try to love God more. You have to stop and say, God loves me even if I never love him more. God loves me when I was at my worst. 
God loves me knowing all my sins, all my faults, all my failures, and he absolutely loves me. The more you realize that, the more you'll find idolatry fading away. The more you'll find idolatry fading away. So let's end with number eight. We praise God because he brings us joy. That's what you see in verses 19 through 21. You see the excitement. The English translators have put exclamation points in there to make it clear to you. To bless the Lord, to praise the Lord, he is good and he does good. We praise God because he brings us joy. Let's pray and then we'll transition into communion. Almighty God, we thank you for this lesson. We thank you for this text. We pray that you would uh, help change our hearts. We confess that we don't often praise you like we should, but we thank you that your word has given us reasons for why we should. On the days when we think, I'll be sovereign, I'll be my own God, I'll do what I want, where we remember you're great and you control things and you sustain us and you give us food and you're the one that brings joy and you're the one that's the creator, not us. So would you help transform our minds according to this text? We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.